Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Metabolic Classroom, a nutrition and lifestyle podcast focused on the truth behind why we get sick and fat. What you're about to hear was taken from a live broadcast streamed on InsulinIQ.com. The Metabolic Classroom is brought to you by InsulinIQ and by Health Code Meal Replacement Shakes. Episode 25, Decoding the Dawn Phenomenon. A spike in glucose levels each morning can be startling, but it doesn't need to be scary. To understand the dawn phenomenon, you need to understand hormones. This is a, a fun topic in a way to cover. It's, a, it's one I also enjoy teaching to students, and I always place it at the end of the semester, right when they're about to take their finals. <laughs> and so I, I then basically, uh, well, you, there's no other way to say it. Talking about stress tends to make the problem worse, right? It's one of those things <laughs> where you start to tell the person how bad it is, and now they just have one more thing to worry about and be stressed about. So I hope everyone listening will forgive me for adding to their stress, but hopefully it, it, this provides some clarity rather than confusion and, and thus helps diminish the stress rather than add to it. Um, our understanding of stress um, in the modern age of, of, of science and medicine is born from the work of a man named Hans Selye. And he was, I think he was a Hungarian um, scientist physician who immigrated uh, to Canada, I believe. But he identified something called the general adaptation syndrome. This was a big name for what was basically this common phenomenon that in these laboratory settings, as they were studying different animals and even humans, looking at the response, there was always uh, looking at the response to different things, to different stimuli. And whether it was sleep deprivation, whether it was physical harm or, or um, uh, other, anything to basically aggravate the person emotionally or physically, that you could do all kinds of things to, to aggravate someone emotionally and physically. And the response to all of these things was the same thing, what we define as the stress response. But he called it the general adaptation syndrome. So it didn't matter what you were doing, you were generally adapting the same way. 
And adapting is when something is changing in response to a stimulus. And this was stress. So he identified in a general adaptation syndrome, three stages of a stress response. And I thought it might be kind of fun to go through those just to set the stage. The first of these is the stage of alarm. And this is the stage that we typically identify when we think of uh, like a classic stress response. People will say that it's the, the fight or flight mechanism. When you are scared or you have to do something, you physically have a demand placed on you to run away or, or to get into action, whatever it may be. That's the stage of alarm. And I'll come back to each of these to bring in the hormones and their relevance in just a moment. As, this, as whatever that stress is, we first responded to the stress in the stage of alarm. And then after several hours, we move into what's called, if this continues, we move into what's called the stage of resistance. And then this is something that can last for several hours to days. If the stress continues beyond that, we get into something called the stage of exhaustion. Now, there's no clearly defined cutoffs for each of these. So please know that I'm kind of describing these, this time, this temporal transition across these stages a bit vague, and that's on purpose. Now, each of these stages are, are defined by the prototypical stress hormones. And there are two, and I'll describe, describe these in more detail. One is epinephrine, which is in the family of catecholamines. Epinephrine is released from the adrenal medulla. So the adrenal glands are just these, the adrenal glands are these small little glands tucked away on top of our kidneys. The adrenal medulla is a part inside the adrenal gland. That's what's secreting epinephrine, also known as adrenaline. And then the most famous of all the stress hormones is cortisol. That's released also from the adrenal glands, but it's released from the outside of the adrenal gland, almost like the shell of the adrenal gland. That's releasing cortisol. Now, epinephrine has these very obvious effects on the body. So this is when you're feeling when you're feeling anxious, if something happens, a, a loud noise, or you're getting ready to get up in front of an audience and give a talk or something, you're nervous. Your heart rate is pounding. It's, it's faster. So the heart rate, epinephrine will push your heart rate up. It will also increase your heart contractility. That, that's not rate. It's a different thing. This is when the heart is beating harder. You can feel it pounding in your chest. It'll also make you sweat a little more. So that's when your palms start to get a little sweat. That's epinephrine's effects. And of course, your blood pressure will spike. Those are some of the obvious effects of epinephrine. Cortisol has a lot of effects. Uh, it can affect almost every system in the body. <clears throat> One of the obvious effects is, well, less, none of them are obvious, rather. Um, cortisol, when it is continued for too long, it starts to destroy connective tissue. So it'll start to break down skin and muscle. It will make a body infertile. It will, it will cut off fertility. It will cut down immunity. It actually compromises your immune system. So it has these catastrophic effects over the long term. In the short term, cortisol and epinephrine have one thing in common. And that is that they both try to increase glucose. So both of these hormones are considered insulin antagonists. Insulin, of course, is very famously trying to lower glucose. Cortisol and epinephrine are trying to increase glucose. That is really the only thing they have in common. Uh, everything else that we associate with these hormones are very distinct. 
I mentioned the epinephrine, I kind of described the cortisol. So the elevations in glucose is what they have in common. Now, let's see how we can fit these two stress hormones in the general adaptation syndrome as someone is moving from a moment of stress or the beginning of a stressful period and as it now um, just continues. So in the stage of alarm, that is, um, you, you feel the stage of alarm. Everything that's happening is a result of the elevated epinephrine levels. So it's the higher heart rate. It, it's also a higher metabolic rate. Um, so the body, that's just feeling a little anxious and amped up. Epinephrine is mediating or causing a lot of that. And then after several hours, epinephrine will start to wane. And around that same time, cortisol is now finally kind of coming online. It takes cortisol a little longer to respond to this stressful event. And in this stage of resistance, we're getting some of the very modest effects of, of cortisol, but it's basically doing everything it can to just increase glucose. That not only involves breaking down um, liver glycogen, so stimulating the liver to break down its glycogen, but it will also potentially start breaking down muscle protein, the amino acids, to try to get to the, to convert those amino acids into glucose. And again, this is when cortisol, the body's been stressed for now hours to days, and the cortisol has climbed. That's the stage of resistance. The stage of exhaustion then is also defined by elevated cortisol. By this time, epinephrine would have come down already um, to a large degree, if not totally, but now it's the maintained cortisol that is now kind of wrecking the body. That's the stage of exhaustion because the body's now just wearing down. The cortisol is now starting to hurt the skin and the bone. It's starting to compromise the immune system, like I mentioned. And the consequences on the skin are not subtle. This is where the person can start to really get marks, stretch marks, and, 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 and almost just lines across their skin um, because the collagen is, the cortisol is so determined to make glucose that it will start stripping the amino acids from even from connective tissue. And so breaking down whatever it can to increase more glucose. Now I've been talking a lot about glucose as I've described these two hormones. And remember that's what epinephrine and cortisol have in common. Despite all their differences, they both act together to increase glucose. That's a problem because insulin of course is trying to lower the glucose. And so now insulin has to work harder. And this is, and thus the body becomes resistant to insulin. And now we have insulin resistance. This is why stress is considered a primary cause. And by, when I say is considered, that's the gospel according to me. And, and frankly, it's a good gospel. This is the only thing I know anything about. So stress is a primary cause of insulin resistance. By primary, I mean, we can take isolated cells in a cell culture I could across my lab right now, I'm growing muscle cells and fat cells in little dishes. I could just put on cortisol and epinephrine and then that culture, and then they would become more insulin resistant than they were before. In animals, I could just give them cortisol and epinephrine and they would become more insulin resistant than they were before. And lastly, in humans, this has been done in clinical settings. All we do is increase the cortisol and or the epinephrine and they become demonstrably more insulin resistant than they were before. So these are primary causes of insulin resistance. And so insulin's going up, the body has to work harder to clear the glucose. Now back to the fat specific effect, or not back to, because I haven't really mentioned it yet. Let's get to the fat specific effects of especially what, what these two hormones are doing. Overall, epinephrine has a lipolytic effect. Epinephrine wants to use fat for fuel. It wants to mobilize the body's stored energy. And so in that short term, that stage of alarm, 
you would have overall a reduction in body fat because of epinephrine. Now it would be subtle, of course. But remember, as we progress through the stages, epinephrine comes down and then cortisol comes up. And cortisol does not have that kind of effect. In fact, it has a bit, a bit of both. Cortisol will actually stimulate the lipolysis or the breakdown of fat stored in fat cells on our periphery. So cortisol wants to break down fat from the arms and the hips, the butt and legs, and, and, and move it. So it's directly stimulating the breakdown of fat on the butt, the hips, the legs, and the arms. But it's stimulating the uptake and the growth of fat cells in the abdominal central reason, region. So there's very distinct effects on these enzymes, these proteins that mediate fat breakdown and fat synthesis or fat storage. And the overall effect is that the person isn't losing fat. They're just moving their fat. Now, this isn't the fat cells taking up, you know, becoming mobile and now rolling through the blood from the button hips now storing on the belly. It's just that those fat cells on, say, the button hips starts to break down their fat, release their fat, and the fat cells on the central part of the body start to pull it in to store it. Cortisol is causing that to happen. And then when we combine that with the fact that cortisol is making the body insulin resistant, now we are combining this movement of fat from the peripheral storage, which is a good place to store fat, into the central storage, which is not as good. But we have that happening in the midst of elevated insulin, which is accelerating the whole process. So that combination of the elevated cortisol from a long-term stress combined with the insulin resistance that the elevated cortisol is causing really creates a bit of a metabolic storm where we are then rapidly gaining weight in the worst place to gain it. And then that of course is itself accelerating the insulin resistance because now we are hypertrophying our central adipocytes you know, compounding the insulin resistance, which just really creates this vicious cycle, which most certainly is going to make the person feel even more stressed and anxious than they were as they noticed this happening. So that's the primer, everybody. That's the primer on stress and fat cells and metabolic function. Um, when it comes to just pure conversations of cortisol, there really is so much to discuss. It has its hand on so many other processes, but the grip that it maintains on, on metabolic function is quite strong and, and it's one to consider. Now, now that I've added to everyone's stress, of course, when they hear this, um, I, I do think it, this is, if there's a call to action or a takeaway, I think a takeaway would be control what you can. And that doesn't necessarily mean the stress. Um, if you are in a stressful situation, um, you certainly do your best to emotionally adjust um, but you control what you can, and you can control your insulin based on what you're eating. So if you can adopt dietary strategies like fasting or low-carb diets that can help your insulin stay low, even though cortisol is trying to bump it up, you are at least depriving it of, you know, dropping, you know, pouring even more gasoline on the fire. You're, you're taking away that gas can somewhat and just to, to soften the blow or mitigate some of the adverse metabolic consequences of the chronically elevated cortisol. Yeah, this week, uh, this week, Ben, I, I, you talked, uh, or it was last week, excuse me, you talked about these, uh, being able to kind of grab the, the lever on uh, mm -hmm. insulin control, and that's a, a easier one maybe, well, I don't know if it's easier, but certainly yeah. one that's maybe easier to grip. 
Um, and then you talked about how the, the lever on stress is a little more slippery because it's more complex. Yes, that's, exact, that's exactly what I'm, I'm talking about here. Because if I just were to tell someone, hey, you're stressed and that's contributing to your weight um, struggles, just lower your stress, you know, they'd look at me and kind of wait for the punchline <laughs> yeah. um, because that's just too vague. You know, you really just can't control that very well. And, and frankly, anyone who says you can, all you just need to do these breathing exercises. And well, I shouldn't speak lightly of that. To be honest, I have found, um, not to make it personal, I do think this is practical, I tend to be a bit of an anxious fella. I'm always a little amped up. I have very, a very hard time um, kind of settling my mind. And I find that I will deliberately slow my breathing by only breathing through my nose and doing brief breath holds where I'll hold my breath deliberately for 10 to 20 seconds. And that actually does help me settle down a bit. But nevertheless, um, I don't ever want to come off as one of those kind of smug guys who just says, oh, he, these are all the ways to control your stress. And look at me, I'm so stress-free. I'm not one of those guys. Yeah. Can, can we talk a little bit about um, what life experiences will create this stress response with cortisol? Uh, like, for instance, pain, um, mm -hmm. disease, mental stress. Can you kind of help us name the, these different categories where we might look to, to improve this response yeah. in our stress well, hormones? Well, sure. I can, um, I can carry that topic for a moment, but frankly, Carly, I think you and Rich might have more practical insight than me. Yeah. So the, the when, when the general adaptation syndrome was identified and just sort of settled um, or accepted as, as this physiological reality across virtually every animal. Um, it, it was um, those you mentioned and in almost everything, anything that the body perceives as something challenging. And I don't mean in a good way, actually, even in a, even in a good way, like exercise, something that is challenging, something that is hard emotionally or physically is going to activate this stress response. Now the only, the hope is of course that we have either adjusted to, to, to uh, not have, have this, if the stressor hasn't changed, we, we try to, we hopefully can adapt and say, this stressor is here. What can I do to mitigate it? You know, if we're touching a hot stove, a, a pan, we pull our hand away and we've removed that stressor. But of course it becomes much more difficult with a chronic disease or a, a toxic relationship or, or social setting. Um, so all I can say is all of those things do play into it, but then, I think Rich and Carly, your co experience as coaches is probably going to provide more uh, practical insight than mine. Well, I just think it's really important to recognize all the different things that could be contributing to your, your cortisol being um, elevated. So like a lack of sleep, that would probably be a, a you know, increase your cortisol. Um, not just pain, but like an injury that you have if it's not healing or it's not getting better. Um, one dealing with a bad back. Um, our our um, physical therapist at Elevate told me, you really should be taking Advil when it gets bad. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to take that. And he's like, no, if you take it, then, you know, the lack of in the lack of pain that you're feeling will actually help it heal more. And, you know, I think just recognizing, you know, putting your body under too much stress, even if you think you can handle it, isn't necessarily an ideal thing for cortisol. So, I think recognizing all the different ways in which we, we do feel stress because there's just so many today in, in, the, in the way we live. Is you know, you know, it's interesting, Ben. Um, 
we kind of, you know, typically we don't joke much around about COVID, but, you know, we, we talk about this COVID-19 as the extra 19 pounds that people put on uh, because of the pandemic. And I always thought it was because they're possibly overeating or they were maybe less active, but maybe it was a stress component because I think a lot of times people were eating more at home and less out. And so they were probably eating better because they weren't eating out as much, but maybe it was the stress component uh, because of the pandemic and COVID that uh, oh, created I, I this problem. I'm sure that contributes to it um, without a doubt uh, because it is a very real anxiety that people are feeling. Um, and, and Carly, what, one thing that I think you were touching on um, people just need to be so careful with social media. It, it does seem that I'm not an expert in this, of course, but there's so much um, marketing power that comes from division and anger. And I've found that I've had to de very deliberately um, control what I consume, what kind of social media I eat. I've needed to kind of go on a social media diet from time to time because I get a little worked up. And I, I like when I drive home in the evenings at the end of the day, I might not have a very long commute, but on occasion, I would listen to podcasts discussing political events and listening to the news. And I just would set myself up to come home a little angry and amped up. And so I now will either, uh, I will usually just listen to music or just keep it quiet. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of inputs with stress and even, even uh, in fact, there are a lot of people who want us to be stressed. Maybe that's a way of saying it. Well, well, Jack, well Jack said it perfectly on our uh those that are being coached on our uh, weekly uh, 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 informational that Jack puts out, it was just awesome about Seth Godin and some of the things that he said and, and uh, how to reduce our stress and, 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 and like Ben said, remove ourselves from social media. I think it was brilliant. Well, sometimes I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, th this is such an interesting topic because w when we talk about nutrition as being one of the primary things that, that you can work on to reverse insulin resistance, it, it's so uh, it's much more definitive what to do, right? Eat this, don't eat this, eat less of this, eat more of this, eat this at certain times. I mean, it's, it's very, you know, you can really make a list. Uh, it's much more difficult, even though with stress, it's much more difficult to make that list, even though this is in fact a huge contributor to, to people struggling to reverse their insulin resistance. And so, Anyway, what Rich is referring to is, is an idea that we had this week that our coached clients are being coached on, which is to try to find, try to find one thing a week. And you mentioned this last week, Ben, in, in your, uh, your talk. Um, let's see, what was it in? It was in one of the, the hangouts, actually, one of our IQ mm. hangouts, where you mentioned uh, just take one thing, but pick something over which you have some control. So if you're stressing about things over which you have no control, that's, uh, that's the kind of things that you ought to just think less about because yeah. you can't do anything about it. But there are things that you can control. And we just suggested that uh, maybe cutting back and taking a fast. We talk a lot about intermittent fasting. Uh, take a fast from the stress that, that watching the news can, can bring into your life and do a, do a one-week uh, media fast and, and see how that affects your stress levels. That's what the thought was this week. Jack, I've, I've, I've found, go, speaking go of fasting, I've found that I respond better to um, stressful situations when I am fasted. Um, when, I, when I overeat, I've, this, is, this is night and day difference. If I have indulged and, and overeaten, I, get, I am so much quicker to anger. 
and frustration mm-hmm. and, and feeling fed up and angry and anxious. But when I'm fasted, I, I am just, I'm so much calmer. Not that I don't get angry. I, I'm sort of just a hot blooded kind of guy, but I control my temper. I control my emotions in response to situations so much better when I'm controlling my diet. Interesting. So, Jack, I had an experience the other day. I was up in the mountains. It's kind of embarrassing. I was up in the mountains on a trail run. I'm doing this, this uh, Tempanogos Marathon, trail marathon here in a couple of weeks. And so I was up there training, and I didn't have anything on. I, I usually listen to one of Ben's bod- podcasts or I listen to some of there my 80s, so many. 80s music. You know, I usually, have, I usually got something in my ear listening to kind of distract me. But this day I wasn't. I was just kind of up there on my own and just running. And I started to think about my relationship with my wife and my children. And, and I was getting a little emotional and I was, I started to tear up and I was actually crying on my run. I came around this corner and there was a buddy of mine coming up and here I am crying. And he's going, what the <laughs> hell is this guy crying for? But he just, I just was able to get up and kind of, you know, remove some of this emotion and some of this uh, stress I was feeling and got a little emotional. It was just a really good time to mm-hmm. kind of to connect with, with, you know, people that I love. And it was, uh, I think that's a really important thing you can do is get out and exercise and get out and go for a walk. And, and I think that's really big in terms of reducing your stress. Yeah. And, and, and just being quiet. I'm sorry, Carly, go ahead. Just having quiet time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, looking to kind of the four categories that we talk about uh, replacing our carb addiction with to look for you know, these dopamine experiences can also be great stress relievers. Um, You both kind of touched on one of them. So the four categories we often talk about are physical activity, creativity. um, Let me see if I can remember them now. Um, (laughs) Human connection (laughs) connection. and um, spirituality. So quietness, going in nature, to me, that is spirituality, like connecting with your own spirit. And Sing, I always tell people singing at the top of my lungs on the way home from work, that's my stress relief. Like I love to, people probably drive past me and think I'm crazy, but to <laughs> me that really does Eighties um, on eight, Carly. Make, me, make me feel good. Um, Get Carly and, and her Aerosmith. In <laughs> Anyone who ever meets Carly, ask to see her Aerosmith tattoo. No, <laughs> I, I won't tell you what, what radio station I'm listening to at the moment. But um, yeah, anyways, I think those are good places to look. And also, like you're saying, avoiding, you know, not feeling, not trying to take the weight of everything on. I think, uh, you know, we, we're, we have a lot of clients that are women. And I think women in general do that really well. We, we, put up, we put on stresses onto our shoulders that we have no control over and recognizing that and saying, you know, trying to detach yourself a little bit in life from the things that you really have no control, I think can be very helpful. And, you know, we often will feel guilt attached to that, but I think you shouldn't, like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't feel the, the weight of other people's stresses that we can't control. Mm-hmm. I think picking yep. picking one thing at a time is a really good way to, to tackle this. Because if if you say, well, I'm just going to be less stressed out, and you don't really just pick one thing to focus on, uh, I think it's much harder to it's reduce pointless. stress. Yeah. It's like, your, it's like your physician saying to you, you know, eat better. Yeah. Well, what, is, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> exactly. Hey, we have a few questions uh, from some of our uh, listeners and, and viewers today. Uh, Brenda asks, can stress cause a heart attack in someone with healthy levels of visceral fat and cholesterol? 
Oh, what a great question. In mm. fact, there is an incredible study. Um, I know that, in fact, let me try to fish through while I answer this question. Let's see if I can multitask for just a second. There was a study published um, in Germany, uh, from, from Germany. It was physicians in Germany, and they published it in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, years ago. Um, what was so, but they looked at heart attack rates in people that had, or, or rates of heart attack admission into like hospitals and emergency rooms during World Cup soccer. And, you know, f of course, in, in Germany and most of the world, soccer is, is the big sport. That's the sport uh, people cheer for maybe more than any other. They found that during the time when Germany was playing in a World Cup match, there was this huge spike in heart attacks. And then when Germany wasn't playing, it dropped back off. And then the next <laughs> week when they played their next round, it was a huge spike. Wow. And then there was another huge spike every time they had a game. Oh, I can't find it here, by golly. Um, you know what, guys, while I'm talking, let me try one more yeah. site because I know people are going to ask for it. Uh, and, and so I figure I'll just say, give the, give the name of it right now really quickly. But, but what was so compelling about this study is that it basically um, – revealed that there was no difference in these people. Their lipids hadn't changed. Their cholesterol hadn't changed, um, you know, from one day to the next. Their, their, whatever it may be, their inflammation or infections hadn't changed. Those are thought to be relevant to um, heart um, atherosclerosis and heart attacks. It was just the stress of, of, you know, cheering for your team and then winning or losing. And the name of the study is cardio cardiovascular events during World Cup soccer, <laughs> and and it is published. It was published in um, two thousand eight, um, volume three fifty eight. And I'm pretty sure, oddly enough, I don't have the name of the journal. I think it was the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, but anyway, cardiovascular events during World Cup soccer. That was the title. And and so yes, a very solid answer, resounding answer. Yes, stress. Um, can appear to contribute to a heart attack independent of any other variable. Um, in, in fact, people who have genetic mutations in genes that mediate stress responses, and this is a real thing, are much more likely to have heart attacks than someone who doesn't have those same mutations in those genes. And wow. I'm afraid I cannot remember the name of those genes. Um, actually, yes, I can. It's right here. It's the 5-HTR2C gene. So if someone has a, what's called a functional polymorphism, if they have a different variant of the 5-HTR2C gene, they have a higher stress response and they have a significantly higher risk of having a heart attack. So yes, resounding yes, stress can cause a heart attack. Then I wrote a paper on that in the third grade. <laughs> in the third grade. <laughs> I think Rich was one of the co-authors on this hallway. No, he wasn't. To play off of that a little bit, I think it's really interesting, this idea. Science doesn't do a really great job of explaining, you know, the difference between our body and our spirit or whatever you want to call it. I think we all come from different backgrounds and you can call it what you want to. Um, but we have two different kind of entities going on in our body. And, you know, science can't explain why somebody can, can spontaneously heal from a disease they should have died from or somebody who's died and by all measurements, their body is dead. And yet they come back to life and can tell you what was going on in that moment. You know, they were watching from the, the ceiling or whatever. Um, and I think, and, and also like you get, you get sick or stressed um, 
and you develop an uh, autoimmune disorder. So I think the, to me, there's, there's power in, in our ability to control our mind and to, you know, connect to whatever higher power you, you, you know, believe in. But I think, you know, there isn't, there is a lot that's going on besides just our physical body that can affect our, our health. Yeah. For sure. Well said. Uh, Michael says, Hey Ben, I thought Canadians are supposed to be less stressed than Americans. <laughs> <laughs> just colder. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that, it may be. That's not true <laughs> in my experience. Um, I guess it's the, oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to get political. So I'll stop. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's my American half. It's my American mom that makes me stress. It also makes go. me ambitious and motivated <laughs> to succeed. So. And uh, Emily, our coach Emily is uh, watching today. Hi, Emily. How are you? Hey, Emily. So Emily hey, put yeah. a question in. Um, if we decrease stress after having chronic stress, could belly fat be redistributed to the rest of the body? Yeah, so that um, the easy answer is yes. Um, if if elevated cortisol caused a fat shift, then a absolutely no question, a reduction in cortisol will result in that shift, that that fat shifting back. But Emily, in the question, there's just a couple assumptions, or not assumptions, but but well, I guess so, um, that I think are relevant. It's just so hard to know. Am I chronically stressed? You know, you might feel, oh my goodness, I'm always rushing around or I have so many deadlines, but you might not actually have elevated cortisol. So even, even someone identifying what is chronic stress is, is very hard, you know, adding even more um, to this idea that stress is a lever, that it's just hard to really firmly grasp. Um, but, but yes, uh, assuming someone knew they were chronically stressed and assuming they did in fact stop it. Absolutely. Cortisol artificially made those fat cells grow. Cortisol, the, the cortisol stepping back will allow the fat cells to go back to how they wanted to be um, without the cortisol. Okay. Hey, Jack, I've got a question. Do you mind if I ask it real quick? Please. Uh, so Ben, uh, a question I get a lot and it, it, my answer typically comes from my athletic training background and excess physiology background, but a lot of my clients that are doing really well in the program and they've, they've are really getting metabolically healthy, their visceral fats, you know, in a really good, a good range you know, under 10, you know, uh, they just feel great, but they just can't seem to get rid of that little last little pouch of fat in their belly. And, uh, they always ask me, you know, how, how do I get rid of this? And my answer is always, well, you can't spot, you know, train that away. And that's from my, you know, athletic training background, but is, does that eventually leave, or is that just some kind of uh, adipose tissue that's going to stay for life? Yeah, yeah. So uh, depending on the, the sex and the genetics, now we'd say those to a degree, that's the same thing, but I'll, I'll, I'll pull them apart um, just for the sake of this conversation. Based on someone's sex, sex hormones will tell the body where to store fat. Um, you, you know, boys will store it, men will store it one place, women will store it another, and it's androgens and estrogens, respectively, that are mediating or dictating the location of fat storage. So women will naturally store more fat on the button hips. So for a woman to say, oh, I just really want to get rid of this fat on my button hips, that's going to be very, very hard. But in fact, before I get into that, let me shift over to the genetic aspect, which is just within families, people, we have mom and dad store or, or mom stores fat in a particular way you know, her daughters are going to store fat or even her sons, you know, her dad does. And then all the sons and daughters are going to store fat. There are just some genetic variables that will dictate where we store fat. 
like on ankles or the backs of the arms, you know, and other just various parts of the body where genetics have determined where, where a person will be more inclined to store fat. There's almost nothing you can do to, to resolve that. That's just the, that's just the hard cold truth where, where genetics uh, is, is telling your body where to store fat. That will always be the first place the fat goes and the very last place it comes from. So if, if a person and so in the belly is just such a nice place to store fat that it's one of those preferred spots. And, and even in women to a degree, to a degree, although a, a premenopausal woman actually prefers, her fat storage is butt and hips more than belly. Postmenopausal, it does shift to the belly. But even still, those locations um, where we are more inclined to store fat, you would have to become exceptionally lean everywhere else before you are really pulling the fat from that site. I mean, I would say lean to the point of you're not healthy. Um, now, it depends on the person how stubborn that fat is, uh, but that will be the last place the fat comes from. And there's no health risk on that subcutaneous fat, right? It's the no, visual fat we're worried about. That's right. So even even saying belly fat is a bit um, is a bit of a loaded term, <clears throat> because if someone has a big belly but it's hanging over their pants and it's like flopping down and you can jiggle it and pinch it and make fun of it like that, then that's that that's actually healthy. That's subcutaneous fat. That's that's all, totally benign when it comes to metabolic health. However, if someone has a big belly and you smack it and it's hard, that means the fat is below the muscle. You don't, you can't jiggle it and it doesn't flop over the belt buckle. It just, you know, it just pushes out. That is visceral fat and that is much more pathogenic. That's a person who does have to be more worried about their fat. So yeah, where we store it, subcutaneous or visceral, both of those could be called belly fat and that's just too vague of a term. We'd want to be specific and say, you know, subcutaneous abdominal or belly fat or visceral fat. So point is, don't stress about it, A. Yeah, yeah. Don't stress about it. And two, just be patient and continue to live a healthy metabolic lifestyle. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Uh, from Nancy, yeah. does that's training for a marathon or long cycling event increase cortisol enough to affect metabolic health? No, no, but it does increase it a bit. And that's on purpose. That's the body. That's your body's way of saying, oh, your muscles have a high demand for glucose right now. Well, these two stress hormones are going to help those muscles get what they need. Then the moment the exercise ends, the demand for glucose starts to subside, the stress hormones come down and they're right back to where they were, which is wonderful because if stress, if cortisol stays high, you can't recover. If cortisol stays high, that's one of the problems with overtraining where this what was supposed to be a mild stress to challenge the body and then step back and let the body recover has now it's too much. It's not a mild stress. It's a, it's a strong stress. And now the stress isn't subsiding and you're not recovering for a workout to be effective. You have to have this stressor be acute or temporary. So in, a, in assuming it's a normal time that rich was out running, it was a good bout of running. It was hard. It was long. He finished his cortisol comes down and then he starts to recover for the next day or two. Ben, does that change if you're fat adapted? Is that, does that kind of mitigate the effects of cortisol? You, you know what? I, I don't think so. I think, well, but, but, but Rich, we can't look at the cortisol as a bad thing. Right. Um, so, so in the case of exercise, in the context of exercise, cortisol is not bad. Epinephrine is not bad. 
And no, I doubt the cortisol would be down. In fact, there's a little part of me that wonders if it might in fact be a little higher um, in just because there's a, a greater push for, but that would depend on intensity and I could be totally wrong. There's no evidence on this. So, so I'll just stop there. Uh, from Matt, does stress always spur a cortisol response or is it our perception that stress is good or bad? Ah, uh, well, that's, that's a, that's a, <laughs> uh, that's quite a question because your perception really almost defines the stress. Um, in a way. So if someone is encountering a, even a horrific event, now if it's, if it's a substantially physical trauma, well, there's no way for you to be looking at this hole in your guts and saying, it's not so bad. You know, everything's <laughs> fine. No, I mean, the body knows what's going on and that's a stress. But to the degree to which there's an emotional stress, which is very much real and very much um, probably what plagues most people, then, then your perception of it defines whether it's stressful or not. So that's entirely relevant. Yeah. Uh, from Danielle. That was kind of what Carly was touching yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Okay, frankly. He worded it much better though. <laughs> like that. Perception. It's your perception that matters. Yeah. Uh, from Daniela. When I do long fasts, I wake up around 3 or 4 a.m. and cannot get back to sleep. Reading about stress, cortisol, and lack of sleep, I can't help but wonder if I would be better off with shorter fasting? Uh, what a great question. Um, I can't answer that. I don't know if you would or not. I will say I noticed the same thing, frankly. If I have fasted for a whole day and I'm fasting through the night as well, um, I either start my 24-hour fast in that, that morning or I'm doing a 36-hour fast or something, and I have very rarely gone beyond that. I just don't enjoy it. Um, I also... And also when I you guys, I, I know this is the stuff people talk about, but I'm finding it more and more. If I'm really strict, low carb keto, I also just wake up earlier. Um, I find that I just am, I tend to wake up um, sometime between three and four and, and I usually won't go back to bed um, or I might very briefly. Um, so if I will try to stay in bed around till around four or four thirty, then I just get up and start writing and working on something. Um, and I actually feel fine. So, but I don't know. Uh, I can't speak to the long-term effects of that. Maybe it's bad. Maybe it's nothing. But I noticed the same thing. Um, I would, I would, I would say maybe if there's some practical takeaway, you would have to decide, Daniela, if, if this is something that's very upsetting or very disruptive um, with these changes in sleep. Then I would say, yeah. Then perhaps you do scale it back a bit. If you find that you're you're feeling fine, and if if and maybe even thriving, then I'd say it, it, it's working. Okay. Uh, from another Emily, different Emily. My glucose is low when I'm fasting during the day, but goes up to up to 120 usually at night, measured by my CGM. I figure I must have elevated cortisol at night. Should I be worried about that? How can I fix it? Hmm. Uh, that's possible. Cortisol usually rises in the early morning, late. Later in the later in the sleep period, so in other words, early morning, um, but it does have a rhythm. It is it is possible. I can't help but wonder what else is happening in the evening. Is are you coming home from work? Have you gone from pretty kind of sedentary or working? You're in the office, or is is if you have family, is that when kids are coming home and now dinner is getting ready? I I, I can't help but suspect there's some 
other external variables that would be playing into it. And it's not just the, the circadian rhythm of cortisol itself. Um, that's also a bit of a jump for cortisol alone, even in the morning when cortisol, early, early morning, when cortisol is at, often at its highest, um, it won't push up, it won't push it up 40 points or so. It's typically going to be more modest. Isn't that normal to see kind of glucose spikes in the middle of the night? Oh, well, I don't know how I see some sometimes. For me, it actually depends on what I've eaten. If I've been really good low carb or fasted, I am a straight line the whole night. If I've been eating low carb and I've eaten a lot, even if it's low carb, if I kind of stuffed myself a bit or had higher calories, I will notice a little more variation at night, but nothing like when I'm eating lots of carbs. If I eat lots of carbs, then I'm all over the place all the time. Do you see the dawn phenomenon or dawn effect happen to you where you have higher? I, I do when I, yeah, it's really interesting. In fact, I'd like to pursue this. If I've been really strict fasting or low carb, I don't see anything. There's nothing at all. It's as flat as ever. Mm-hmm. If I have been um, eating a lot, even if it's low carb, if, it, if it's almost like I have a lot of energy or a lot of excess calories, I do see an increase that takes a while for it to come back down. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, any other um, questions from you, Carly or Rich, related to our topic about stress? In fact, Jack, I wanted to, I wanted, the, the question that was asked just before this one, was it Daniela's question? Yes. I actually wanted to push Jack, uh, to push Rich and Carly. Um, can you remind what the question was? Because mm-hmm. I wanted the coach insight there. I thought they might have something valuable yeah, to say me, about it. Let me scroll back. It's the one about uh, waking up, 3 or 4 a.m., can't get back to sleep, reading about stress, cortisol, and lack of sleep. With fasting. Mm -hmm. Do you guys see this personally or in clients? Yeah, and I would say um, I like what you said about, I think first we get these ideas that, you know, eight hours of sleep is normal or um, not waking up at 3 or 4 is normal. But if you've gone to bed at an early time, um, your body just might not need as much sleep when it's very insulin sensitive. We see that with a lot of people where they're nervous at the beginning, like, oh, this is ruining my sleep. And then when I push a little more and ask, what does that mean? This is ruining my sleep. All of a sudden, they're surviving great on six or seven hours, when in the past, they needed eight or nine. Um, and so I think it's, it's very typical. And you first have to ask yourself, is this actually improving my sleep, but it's more different than it was? You know, it's so different that it, it feels like it's hurting it. Mm-hmm. And then I think also, I think, it makes me wonder, is the, is the cortisol response from a fast, a longer period fast, is that what determines the difference between somebody who does really well with long-term fasting and somebody who doesn't? Because, um, you know, we see that too, where, where longer periods of fasting really work for some of our more insulin resistant clients. And then other people, it just seems to not work so well. They struggle and you know, all they do is lose muscle mass and water, and then it, they gain mm-hmm. it all back, you know, where other people seem to be able to lose fat during that period of time. Thank you for listening to the Metabolic Classroom. This podcast is brought to you by Insulin IQ, nutrition and lifestyle coaching for insulin control and better health. Learn more at insuliniq.com. And by Health Code, the world's healthiest and most delicious meal replacement shake. Learn more at Get Health, that's G-E-T-H-L-T-H dot com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube 
at InsulinIQ. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.